You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. You know, Paul says uh, that to the Corinthians that he came with much weakness. And I think the Advent strategy is to convince all of us pastors, preachers, before the end of the day, that we are weak too. 7.30, 9 o'clock, Sunday school class at 10, and then a service at 11. So if you're not weak by the end of that, I don't know. Uh, I was, and my wife prays for me that my brain will work for the 11 o'clock service. Uh, We are in Luke chapter 12, and uh, I have been spending a lot of my time working on the parables. I'm kind of into the parables now. Uh, And uh, thanks. Uh, When I left it open, people weren't talking. I thought that would be inviting for people coming in, but... uh, What I'd like to look at uh, briefly uh, is two parables, both about servants and masters. And uh, it picks up really well from the discussion of the parable of the rich fool that I did the last time in the dean's class. And the parable of the rich fool is a powerful parable. It's followed by a section where Jesus says, uh, speaks, preaches on do not worry. What I find interesting is that the parables were grouped together in Matthew so that it was like a sermon of parables. Matthew 13 kicks it off. They all have the parable of the sower at the beginning. And that uh, collection of parables in Matthew comes after the Sermon on the Mount. What Luke does instead is he takes the Sermon on the Mount and breaks it up. And so as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and this travel narrative is interspersed with Sermon on the Mount teachings. And so that, that's interesting from a New Testament standpoint because what Luke does is he takes the parables and situates them in a particular place in the Sermon on the Mount to illustrate that truth. So they're much more illustrative, broken up and used throughout the sermon. Uh, my theory is that Jesus went to parables partly because of the opposition. He could, in a sense, speak indirectly. And he could speak indirectly in such a way as to instruct the disciples who often asked for, what does this mean? What's the explanation of it? And therefore, he gave the interpretation of it. Or it was so obvious that it made sense to the disciples without even needing an extra explanation. Uh, But he did this sort of subversively. He chose story that could be interpreted naively, without its point, as a story. And he must have told these uh, graphically enough to gain the attention of the people. Uh, It was always like, if you have ears to hear, hear. Uh, If you have eyes to see, see. Uh, Let's pray. Lord God, as we spend a few moments in these two parables now, we ask for insight and for understanding. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that the Spirit never wastes our time if we're attentive. We do praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. So verse 35 of Luke 12, 
be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. Now, that's the shocking truth of the parable. Just woven in there. I mean, I read it through and almost miss it. Uh, But that's the shocking truth. Who ever heard of the master changing clothes and now serving? He's come from a wedding banquet late at night, maybe close to early morning. And the parable is uh, two, two ways that the servants could be prepared, dressed, ready for service, and their lamps burning. Uh, just sort of metaphors for speaking of being really ready. And that dress theme that runs through Scripture, uh, this is an aside, maybe I shouldn't even go here, but in the book of Revelation, oftentimes the expectation of the faithful believer is stated so simply, like stay alert, stay awake, keep your clothes on. As if to say, that's, that's enough to say, to be ready, to be alert, so be dressed, uh, and all the analogies of clothing that run through the New Testament, uh, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and goodness and humility and gentleness and patience. A preacher can actually do something with this. Dress yourself, be ready for service. Keep your lamps burning, the light. Uh, you know, again, it's it's the metaphor that's supposed to sort of pop out at you. Uh, this is the light, the light of Christ, the light of truth. Keep your lamps burning. Both of these would speak to the Christian, both of their sort of true spirituality and their true illumination of the word of God and dependence upon it. So they're not just simple metaphors. They're packed metaphors. Um Servants waiting for the master to return from a wedding banquet. And this master is exuberant. He's thrilled. Uh, the glory of the wedding has uh, not left him. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. Now, who's telling this parable? Jesus. Who's going to dress down and serve? In the upper room, right? John 13, Jesus takes off his his robe and wraps himself with the towel and washes the disciples' feet. Do you think that was in his mind when he talked about the exuberant master dressing down and and serving? I kind of think it was. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. And it will be good. Uh, if you have ESV, I think uh, it says you'll be blessed. The word is makarios, which is the same word that's used in the Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The blessed is makarios, and this is makarios as well. For those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this. 
If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So, bottom line is that there is a kind of eschatological perspective here. Eschaton, meaning the end time. Uh, And Jesus is preparing the disciples for a gap between his ascension and his second coming. And he is calling for an urgency, a preparedness, a readiness uh, to serve and to be alert. So the points on you, uh, number one, under the introduction, I'm going to stop there because that's where the first parable ends. A good question with which to begin this parable is, do you know who your boss is? Do you know who your boss is? Remember Dylan's song, you got to serve somebody? Well, we do. We all do have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord but you got to serve somebody. Um, My aunt on my wife's side, Catherine Long, had a great line. You will know that you have the heart of a servant when you're treated like one. Uh, Hudson Taylor, who was responsible for uh, evangelizing many in the pre-communist China, turn of the century, Do you know, he asked, do you see yourself as an indentured slave to a wonderful master? And Taylor added, I'm an insignificant servant of the illustrious Lord. There's something about being a servant to Christ that motivates the being prepared, letting your lamp shine and being dressed ready for service but that you don't find it humiliating to be under his lordship. But you actually, you find it as really, truly your place. You know, I I don't want my children to feel humiliated by being a son or daughter to to me as their father, obviously. We don't want that. Um, I want them to feel really well in that position of being um, under the fatherhood rather than chafing under it. Um, And I think that's the analogy here somewhat with the Lord and ourselves. If you're your own boss, you're in trouble. If you find it humiliating to think in terms of being a slave of Christ or under Christ or that he is Lord. Um, A few weeks back uh, in a service, I think it was a service, they all blend together, but um, uh, I talked about Will Norton, who was the dean of the grad school, whom I asked when I was a youth pastor to come and speak at a youth conference of many churches coming together for a winter camp. So there were several hundred high schoolers and the other youth pastors thought it was very odd that I would ask the dean of a graduate school to come and speak. Uh, did I have my? Uh, did I need my head examined? Was what one guy said to me. Um, but Will was just terrific. I remember the Friday night he got up on the table, jeans, long white hair, 
and he told stories of his uh, 20 years of ministering in Africa. He had he had these kids riveted. They were listening to every word. It was just totally still. And the theme, the refrain that kept coming through was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So the servant-master relationship has not become anachronistic. It's not outdated. Servant and Lord is the relationship. Um, So who's your boss? Number two, and I won't talk that much on each one. Thank goodness. Uh, the parable explores our behavior during the interval between the ascension and the second coming. Three, as our striving for worldly wealth ceases, our striving for kingdom purposes increases. And this is in the aftermath of the parable of the rich fool. And in the light of not worrying about material things that Jesus has developed in the passage just prior to that. Number four, the parable invokes Jesus Christ standing at the door and knocking. Remember Revelation 3.20, which is not an, uh, an invitation to salvation as much as an invitation to true discipleship in Revelation chapter 3. The wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turned water to wine and the marriage supper of the Lamb, all of that has analogical relationship to what Jesus says here in this parable of the faithful servants and the exuberant master. Number five, readiness for faithful service is described in two ways. I've discussed that. Six, the second image, keeping lamps burning bright, also triggers the biblical imagination. Okay, number seven, the surprising twist in the parable is what the master does when he comes. The master arrives home late, finds his faithful servants ready and waiting. He's in a hilarious mood. Ken Bailey who spent 30 years in the Middle East uh, and has written widely on the parables and uh, and the Gospels. And Paul uh, writes, the master's acts represent a stunning reversal of roles. I know of no incident in contemporary life or in a story out of the past in the Middle East where such an incredible reversal of status appears. Highly unusual for the master to be described as doing that, but that's what Jesus did. Uh, In order to try to bring out the shock of that, uh, in a a little book I did on hospitality, and I've done this as a Sunday school class here entitled Table Grace, uh, I talk about the preparation for a banquet at Windsor Castle which is extraordinary. I saw a a documentary on it and the months of preparation to host one of these uh, uh, annual banquets uh, where the queen presides. To get the shock of this would be the queen after surveying the setup and making sure that everything was perfect and after introducing the beginning of the banquet and the dinner and everybody beginning to proceed, imagine the queen changing into the servant costume, the servant uniform, I should say, and beginning to serve the tables. Unthinkable. Not something that we would ever imagine doing, but that's the analogy that Jesus gives of himself serving us. And again, the parent-child relationship is such that the parent is in authority, but how the parent serves and how the parent humbles herself or himself to help the child. Number nine, 
Peter is confused. Does this challenge to be ready apply to everyone or just his disciples, just to the disciples? Verse 41, Peter asks, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? So often the parable is given and the disciples ask a question. Here, the question that Peter's asking is, well, is this for everybody or is this for us? And in response, the Lord doesn't explicitly answer his question. He tells him another story. Um, so any on that first parable, any thoughts, comments, issues that come to your mind? Okay, well, let's move on to the second parable. It's verse 42, um, and I'm going to read that. Uh, beginning here in verse 42, the Lord answered, who then, see where I'm reading 42, the Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food and allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so that when he returns, truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master's taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. And the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he's not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and sign him a place with the unbelievers. And you see this, we've gone from hyperbole to, um, to uh, to super hyperbole uh, in this description. And ah, we're kind of ta- are we talking about judgment? Are we talking about the end times? Verse 47, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving, deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows from everyone who has been given much much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You know how here at the Advent we're always emphasizing grace um, and that we are uh, saved by grace, apart from works, um, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. Um, But that parable has kind of a slant to it that actually implies something's demanded of us, something's expected of us. The grace comes with a certain expectation of wanting to serve, of needing to serve, of loving to serve. Cheap grace, which Dietrich Bonhoeffer denounced so strenuously, was a grace that kind of... uh, was used as an excuse for not serving, for not entering in, for not being used by God. Um, Was Jesus serious about this, about servants serving? Now, what is it that the servant's supposed to do, that steward of resources is summed up with a simple act, one particular responsibility particularly? Give them food in the proper time. Now, how could that not be said more simply? Giving them food in the proper time. Serve it up. I mean, you can't, you can't make that more complicated 
what is the task? And this is where this ties in really well with this morning's message. The task is to give the word of God. That's the feeding. John 21, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? To Peter and the response, Jesus' response to Peter when Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. So whether a, whether a brother or sister relationship in Christ, whether a parent-child relationship in Christ, whether a pastor-congregation relationship in Christ, whether a Sunday school teacher and class relationship to Christ, it's feeding the people of God, the word of God. And that's the analogy that um, Jesus is using here. The steward doesn't feed the congregation. Oh, man. Uh, you know, I, we get all sorts of student backgrounds at Beeson. Um, and you know, many of them are, are great. Um, and probably my stories come from people who you know, aren't matriculating at, at Beeson. But um, I remember one uh, Alabama girl, uh, Kyla by name, who uh, raised in a small church, kind of a rural church, and the pastor had three messages. Come to Jesus or you're going to hell. Come to Jesus and then you should go to church. Uh, come to Jesus. Uh, I even forget the third one. Um, but just that me- over and over and over again. It was a guilt message. Um, and for her, when she went to Vanderbilt, she had no idea what the Christian faith stood for whatsoever. Her parents in her last year before going to college divorced. She had gotten out of an abusive relationship herself. And she ended up with in a student group at Vanderbilt that really taught the word of God. It was the first time she realized what the Christian faith was all about. Uh, I just lament at, and maybe I'm too critical. It's an occupational hazard of such poor preaching in the American church. Uh, so shallow, so so non-biblical, so empty. The bad preaching that I alluded to, um, a waste of time preaching. Uh, given by very nice people and nice Christians often, but not the kind of preaching that really speaks to people and applies the word of God to their life and to their situation, to their mind and to their heart. The bubble speech that uh, isn't connecting the word of God and almost creating a kind of inoculation to the truth of God so that people expect to be bored expect to be turned off, expect not to really... To me, a message should trigger your adrenaline. There should be a sense in which the truth spoken into your life, your heart, your soul, uh, wakens you. Um, and you can't just kiss it off. Robert uh, Capon is an Episcopal priest, number 13 there. Um on page two, I should have numbered this, huh? Under faithless manager and the furious master. Uh, so we have an exuberant master in the first one and a furious master in the second one. 
Number 13, after all the years the church has suffered under forceful preachers and winning orators, under compelling pulpiteers and clerical big mouths with egos to match, how nice to hear that Jesus expects preachers in their congregation to be nothing more than faithful household cooks. Not gourmet chefs, not banquet managers, not caterers caterers to thousands, just gospel pot rattlers who can turn a decent, nourishing meal once a week. And not even a whole meal, perhaps. Only the right food at the right time. The preacher has only to deliver food, not flash. Gospel, not uplift. And the preacher's congregational family doesn't even have to like it. If it's good food at the right time, they can bellyache all they want as long as they get enough death and resurrection. Someday they may even realize they've been well fed. I like that. Of course I resonate with that. How many of you have seen Michael Pollan's Defense of Food? If you have Netflix, you may want to watch it. Um, That analogy comes to my mind uh, because uh, Pollan really takes to task the Western commercial diet and the center aisles he sees as dangerous to our health. All this packaged consumer... um, modified food that promises to save you from heart attacks and cholesterol and everything else. But he says the better food, the real food, is in the produce section. It's on the edges. Um, The real food is in the produce section without that fancy packaging, Pollen says. The quieter the food, the healthier the food. It's a great line. The quieter the food, the healthier the food. His recommendation, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, eat real food. The household of faith needs servant managers who offer real food. These are the servant managers who are commended by the master. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. There is no sympathy for the manager who fails to feed the servants, just as there's no sympathy for the pastor who fails to feed the congregation. Uh, In the small church that I grew up in, uh, I grew up in several of them, uh, pastor, a good guy, well-meaning guy, uh, shouted. He just shouted. And my dad uh, was a mathematician, and uh, he would pull out a piece of paper and start working on a calculus problem <laughs> when the pastor started preaching and shouting. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, my dad loved the word of God, uh, passed that on to me. Um, and I kind of was glad to be raised in a home that uh, resisted sort of hypocrisy. Um, when the sermon went south, my dad basically said, you don't have to, really don't have to listen to this. Um, you can't stop thinking and you can't stop respecting the word of God, but you've got to be able to discern and distinguish. Number 16, the most surprising twist in the parable is not the manager's failure, but the fury of the master's wrath when he comes home and finds out what's happened. Literally all hell breaks loose. 
The master of that servant will have him cut to pieces and sent to hell. The word cut to pieces is a gripping hyperbole, is gripping hyperbole to underscore the punishment of the unfaithful servant, the polar opposite of the blessing of the faithful servant. Jesus' conclusion, number 17, really needs no interpretation or explanation. Jesus holds his servants accountable. We must not soften it or turn it into a mystery, whether out of willful neglect or unwitting ignorance, servants who refuse to do the masters will suffer severe consequences. There's a place for real seriousness. There was an op-ed in today's New York Times, which I read at 5 o'clock, um, on Tony Romo, sportscaster for the Super Bowl today, uh, the color commentator, the athlete, the, co uh, the quarterback turned uh, sportscaster, as to how good he is. He's really good. And uh, I, I found it sort of confirmation because uh, in hearing him uh, through some of the uh, games uh, this season, I thought Tony Romo was really interesting to listen to. He has the excitement of a 10-year-old who's discovered dinosaurs uh, in I mean, he just loves football. So you've got that. But he's also really serious about the game. And the, the article was kind of basing on the fact that um, it's not an act for Romo. It's who he is. And he loves the game. He knows the game. And he has a real high percentage of commenting on what is the next play. And sort of like a 70 to 80% success rate in predicting what's coming because he knows the game so well. And, uh, and the article went on to, to the op-ed piece was, we are inundated with information, with ideas, with data, with things. It's just coming at us all the time. And it's hard in the, in the wake of all of that, that tsunami of information and data, to understand what's, what's real, what's serious. And we need more communicators to kind of cut through the crap in order to communicate the truth. And, um, and I think both of these parables kind of stress that. Who's your boss? Who is your boss? And who are you feeding? Who are you feeding? Are you being fed so that you can feed? And I'm going to go to work. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, uh, we ask for your blessing in this week. Make us conscious of your presence, those opportunities to live into the salvation that you have blessed us with. We praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.